there has apparently been announced the arrest of another person in connection with this crime. From the moment she met this offender, was very uneasy with her, didn't trust her, and felt that something was up with her. We started seeing what we call cesarean abductions, where a woman is attacked when she's pregnant and about to give birth. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Breaking the Case. I'm your host, Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. I am remote to all my co-hosts today. And first, of course, I think you'll all recognize this guy's voice. Hello, I'm Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer-producer on CBS's Criminal Minds in our last season. That's right. Don't worry. Everyone will be tuning in, I think, in the next uh, couple of weeks. Right, Jim? It premieres. Yeah, actually, in a week, yes. Wow, congratulations. Thanks. The dulcet tones of that wonderful person you all just heard is... Maureen O'Connell, retired FBI agent. Well... Everyone, I'm so excited to do this follow-up episode of Breaking the Case. We started this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Tim and Maureen joined me because Jim was tied up with some of his other duties, and so we're excited to have Jim back in. Tim and Bobby Chacon will be joining us sometimes as well, as will other of our XG colleagues, former law enforcement friends and colleagues, as we break the case what's going on in crime in the week. So we can give you all a true look behind police lines and inside these investigations of what we think is happening in a way that the news media just can't do because they don't have the time. We have the time and we're going to bring it to you. Yeah. So we're going to continue the coverage of the very horrific case of the abduction and murder of Heidi Broussard and the kidnapping of her baby. That's right, Jim. We, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, back when Heidi Broussard was missing. She went missing in Texas in, on December the 12th, and Tim and Maureen and I were going through the facts of the case. And Jim, we talked about two different theories. The first, of course, our theory was that the boyfriend, husband, fiance, it's a little unclear to me. It's, he's reported different ways in different news accounts. So just maybe for ease of use, let's just call him husband. That It appeared that Heidi Broussard's husband was acting very strangely. He waited hours and hours to call the police. And Jim, we thought maybe that was an indicator that he had something to hide. 
Well, that may be an indicator that he had something to hide, or it may be an indicator that he is not an alarmist and that he just figured she was out doing something. I mean, a few hours is one thing. A day or two would be a whole nother thing. The fact is she may have been a very independent woman and she may have gone off for hours at a time anyway. But obviously there were some indicators that there was something up because her car was there, the diaper bag was there, and her purse was there. So he may have just been the kind of guy who, ah, it's nothing big. So, And it was reported that oftentimes when she wasn't home, but her car was there, she was in fact at one of her neighbor's house. It's something that they did regularly, and it's something that I mentioned last time. Additionally, I had said on HLN that morning when they asked me when she was first reported missing and he did his press conference, that for the first time ever, I felt that he was believable. Not that it couldn't have been the case that he was, in fact, just destroyed by what he did, if in fact he did anything. But I didn't see any red flags or any indications of deception. And it really surprised me, to be honest. So I was glad to hear he had nothing to do with it, horrified to hear what happened to that poor woman. And that was the second theory, Jim, that Maureen and Tim and I discussed on the first episode of Breaking the Case. And that is specifically that we wondered whether it was possible because Heidi's young daughter, Margot, was only two weeks old when she disappeared. And I actually, believe it or not, Jim, you weren't there, but I quoted you. And I mentioned that you often talked about that being a particular kind of offender, someone who targets either unborn children or brand new infants. Yeah, absolutely. And when we did the child abduction study back in 2000, we looked at all the child abductions over a 10-year period at the behavioral analysis unit. And we came up with what turned out to be four major motives for child abduction. One being sex. That was 50% of the child abductions in the United States. Two being profit. And that was 11%. And that could be for ransom, but it could also be, you know, a drug deal gone bad. So they take a kid to try to get the money back, things like that. And then 31% were emotion driven. And that could be anger or trying to get back at somebody or jealousy or rage. And that motivated the abduction of a child. And then the final one, And the smallest sliver of that pile was maternal desire. And that is a very strong desire, apparently, in some of these offenders. And these are typically female offenders who can't have a kid, just lost a kid, or can't keep a husband and want to by producing a child and saying, this child is yours. So they feign pregnancy, and then they steal a child and say, this child is yours. You need to stay with me. So there's a number of different subcategories in maternal desire. But what we did after we did this study and published the results, we instituted security precautions in all the hospitals across the United States of America. And as a result of that, this type of child abduction actually for a period of time went down to zero and not a single child was taken from a hospital. And if we looked at the locations where these children were taken, it was pretty stark that in the cases that we saw of infant abductions in the United States of America, 53.2% were from the hospital, 
35% were from the home and 11% were from other locations, from the street, from a vehicle, from a shopping center, things like that. But the vast majority of them were in the hospital and we were able to, by instituting security procedures, shut them down completely. In fact, I don't believe in the United States since then there's been an abduction of an infant from a hospital, except for one case that was in Puerto Rico where they did not have those security procedures. So it's something that a crime that we were able to almost completely wipe out, but then something new happened. Wow, that's very impactful work, Jim. That's that's the kind of stuff that makes you feel good when your career is over, that you really, you know, made an impact on, on such a horrific crime. So, Jim, you said that something happened. What what changed or what, what new happened? Well, Francie, a new crime began to occur. And I said that this maternal desire is an extremely strong desire and motivation in these women offenders. And what happened was we started seeing what we call cesarean abductions, where a woman is either befriended or attacked when she's pregnant and about to give birth. And this offender will either kill the mother and then cut the baby out of the mother or not kill the mother and cut the baby out of the mother and kill her in the process. This happened a number of times, and there are very horrific, violent crimes. But the only good side of this is that in these types of abductions, although I've said these statistics many times, of the children who are abducted and killed, 44% are killed in the first hour, 73% in the first three hours, 99% in the first 24 hours. In the case of maternal desire, infant abductions, Almost every case, the desire is to keep the child alive. They are not trying to kill that child. And if they are not inept at pulling off this crime, typically the child does survive. The problem is children are very fungible. And unless you know that that child isn't actually attached to the woman who has it, it's very difficult to find that kid because they can hide in plain sight. Well, and and Jim, Maureen and Tim and I discussed this possibility. And Maureen, one of the things we talked about, if you remember, was collecting evidence and what the investigators were doing in the hours and days after Heidi and Margot's disappearance on December the 12th. And we talked very specifically about video cameras and surveillance in the apartment complex. And we've learned since we found out what happened to Heidi and Margot, we've learned about the surveillance in the apartment complex. What can you tell us about that? Well, the interesting thing is when the chief of police came out and did a press conference and said that all possibilities are still open and the police chief said that he did believe in fact that Heidi Broussard and her baby did return to the apartment complex, they mentioned all kinds of things and they talked around a lot of different issues, but it really struck me that he was saying that the boyfriend or husband may not have been the person they were most closely looking at because they had done a lot of things that we just mentioned. For example, they looked at her husband's phone data and her phone data from that period of time before her phone was turned off to see if they were in fact in the same location, if they were pinging off the same towers. They looked at text messages to each other to see if they were loving in nature or if there was consternation involved. 
They talked to all the neighbors to see if they had if they fought regularly. Every single statement that that husband slash boyfriend made to authorities and to neighbors was scrutinized and it was verified or disproven throughout the entire thing. So I think at the time that they made that press conference, they were fairly clear without wanting to go out on a ledge to say that this may be one of those really rare cases that Jim talked about where it was a stranger abduction. One of the things that has come out now is that there was video surveillance in the apartment complex and that officers were able to see that she got in this woman's car. And I think if I'm a lay person and I haven't reviewed a lot of police reports or more importantly, looked at a lot of surveillance tape hours and hours, minute by minute, I don't quite understand what took what appears to be days to figure out who the person was whose car Heidi Broussard and Margot got in. Can you talk about that a little bit and what that's like? Francie, I think what we're talking about is possibly a ring doorbell and the vehicle that they saw, it was probably just a profile of that vehicle. So they saw her get in and they could potentially tell that it may have been a female driver. Well, and Jim, I know you worked a lot of bank robberies in New York with, you know, probably dozens or hundreds of hours of reviewing video footage. What is that like as as an agent, as an officer trying to comb through that? Well, there can be literally hundreds, if not thousands of hours. And what they should have done if they did have a ring doorbell that captured this image of Heidi getting into this car with her baby, they should have looked at every house up and down the street and then all of the banks and other businesses on the main streets that split off of that street to see if they could capture that vehicle either leaving or coming to that neighborhood. And that could literally mean thousands of hours getting out on the street, knocking on doors, talking to business owners, getting people in in the middle of the night, and reviewing literally millions of frames of video. Unfortunately, most surveillance video is not high definition. And so it can be very difficult many times when you think you have a camera that's pointing at the right place, unfortunately, it malfunctions or it just doesn't capture the license plate. Clearly, it took a long time for them to identify the license plate. So it must have been a very difficult process if it took that long. Additionally, Francie, and I've done a lot of this working gangs all those years and in my personal business, like Jim said, the key thing here is the angle of the camera. Oftentimes people mount their cameras higher so that they can't be destroyed or stolen or anything like that. And in doing so, you can't really see the face or image of the person. But in this case, I would say, having done this a lot, that it probably had an angle that could see the cars parked on the street, but the vehicle that came to pick her up drove behind those cars. So all they could see was a car pulling up and someone in the driver's seat. And they couldn't even tell which kind of car it was because the majority of the vehicle was obscured with something else in between, a tree or another car. Well, what's interesting about that, Maureen, as as an investigator for you and for Jim, I'm sure, 
is if that is what they saw, they must have immediately realized that this was not a forcible abduction. If you could see on video that Heidi apparently gets in the car voluntarily, what does that suggest to you, Jim? Well, it suggests that perhaps there is a relationship between the person who she got in the car with and the victim. But the problem is that in this case, she got in that car leaving the diaper bag and the purse. Now, it could be that she got in the car because this potential offender here either threatened her or feigned that she was in trouble in an emergency, needed her help. And anything in between could have happened. So it's not definitive one way or the other, but in the end, we all know that the person who's been charged with two counts of kidnapping and tampering with a corpse was a very close friend of the victims. And this is a very unique situation. Typically, in the cases that we studied of infant abductions, where the motive was maternal desire, the person who committed the crimes had been either a complete stranger or somebody who more recently befriended the pregnant woman, got close to them, maybe feigned pregnancy themselves, and got into classes and Lamaze classes and things like that and parenting classes so that they could look for victims, potential victims, and then got close with one and that person let their guard down. And then just before they gave birth or just after they gave birth, that's when the assault and the abduction of the child occurred. Well, Jim and Maureen, this question is for both of you. Maureen, first, I think that one of the more interesting twists in this terrible case is that you have reports now that the woman who's been charged with kidnapping Heidi and the baby had been feigning pregnancy, as Jim says, which in my prosecutor's brain suggests to me that there was some plan or scheme going on. On the other hand, we have learned that Heidi's body was found stuffed in the trunk of this woman's car where it had been for days, which to me, again, as a prosecutor, suggests someone who had not thought things out. So Maureen, what do you think about those two things and what they suggest to investigators at this point about planning or not planning? Well, first of all, the fact that the offender put Heidi Broussard's body in the trunk, to me, just says that she may have planned it all the way to a point, but not the disposal of the body. I think the offender was able to plan it up to that point, but had no idea how to permanently conceal the body of the victim. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Maureen. And in the cases we studied, there was noted pre-planning. There was a lot of things done, purchasing diapers, bottles, going through maternity training, preparation of a nursery. They might obtain fraudulent paperwork with birth certificates, hospital records, all those kinds of things, attempt to alter their physical appearance or the physical appearance of the baby. There were all these things planned. But like you said, what they didn't plan was the result of the murder of the mother. And they knew they would have to kill the mother. Otherwise, that mother would relentlessly pursue them particularly in a case like this, where the mother knew the offender. So the fact is that most of these offenders are smart enough to plan what they're going to do once they have the baby. 
but they're not criminally and forensically sophisticated enough to plan the crime of murder. And then, as you said, the permanent concealment of that body, which is incredibly difficult to do. So we find these offenders rather quickly in most of these cases. Unfortunately, if you don't find them right away, and if you don't recover the child right away, those infants are fairly fungible, and it's very difficult to then suss them out as time goes on. Well, and in fact, here, Jim, they had to do a DNA test. They did not immediately hand baby Margot over to her father. They wanted to verify that she was, in fact, baby Margot, which they did, and they gave her back to her father. And the funeral was also just recently held. Another question I wanted to ask the two of you, though, is about one of the very latest developments as of today, the day that we're taping this Breaking the Case episode, and that is there has apparently been announced the arrest of another person in connection with this crime. And I did note that no one has yet, to our knowledge, been charged with the actual murder of Heidi. So, Jim, to you first, what do you think all that means? Well, apparently... This offender had some kind of accomplice, and whether this is somebody she confided in or whether it's somebody who actually helped, whether it was driving in helping her get the body into the trunk, in helping kill Heidi, I don't know. But obviously somebody has been arrested, and that may be an investigative tool. In other words, they may not have a complete investigation done, and this is part of the investigation. Or they may actually have evidence that this person participated in the murder of Heidi or in somehow in the abduction of her child. Or another option would be that the person they have right now is someone that lied for the offender or in some way, shape or form distanced her from the investigation when in fact they knew full well that she was deeply involved. Could be, yeah. So an accessory after the fact. Correct. I also think it's very interesting to note that Heidi Broussard's mother, Tammy, from the moment she met this offender, was very uneasy with her, didn't trust her, and felt that something was up with her. Perfect example of mother's intuition, I guess. Well, it is. It also looks to me like it's very significant that there was a long-term relationship, apparently, between Heidi and the woman who looks to have been her killer. I think the other thing that's significant to me, and we have to mention, and I'm so grateful that little Margot was found alive, because if you recall, Jim, we talked about a case not too long ago, several months ago, I think it was also from Texas, where there was a similar case, although in that one, you had an unborn child, as you've described, in a cesarean abduction, cut from his mother's womb and taken, and the mother died. When the child was eventually found, it ended up being the plot of two women, a mother and daughter combination, who lured the victim to their house with false tales of free new baby clothes that she thought it would be really nice to have for her soon-to-be-born child. So that's another case where there was a, a tragedy, and it was actually a double tragedy because that baby boy eventually died. He could not survive the wounds from being cut from his mother. Ugh, it's terrible. Well, we're going to continue to follow this case. There'll be more information coming out as the hearings start happening. I know that at least in some articles, it says that 
the woman who actually committed the crime was planning on testifying in court. That's just outrageous. I don't think I don't think it's a wise thing for anybody to do. I think that her defense attorney, if that's who made that announcement, was just trying to grandstand because anybody who gets up in court and testifies, their statements can be used against them. So I don't understand why that would happen. Do you, Francie? I don't. It's inexplicable. It certainly suggests to me, if it's true, that it's an offender who thinks she can talk her way out of the crime. And and Jim, Maureen, all of us have seen offenders like that who are so arrogant, so confident, or so deluded that they think they can talk their way out of a charge, an indictment, or a conviction. And that's rarely the case. I love it. I'm so happy when they do that. I just think it's fantastic. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get so excited when that when that happens, because I know it's usually a downward spiral and they open doors that should never be opened if you're considering their best interest. Well, thanks, everybody, for another great episode of our new series here on Best Case, Worst Case called Breaking the Case, where we bring you the breaking news and take you behind police lines with much more detail and depth than they can on the newscast. Thanks to Maureen for joining us again. And Jim, of course, I'll see you back in L.A. In the meantime, everybody, thanks for listening to this episode of Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, L.A. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba, And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to do something about child sexual abuse, Darkness Delight can help. Did you know that more than 90% of the time children are sexually abused by someone they know? Jim, this isn't about stranger danger. It's about learning the true risks. Darkness to Light's training can help prevent, recognize, and react to child sexual abuse in your community. When you make the decision to get involved, kids can be protected. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org to take the training and learn more. That's d, the number two, l.org.